Welcome to the Emirates Natural History Group podcast. Over the course of this series, we will be sharing recordings of our lectures from regional experts about nature, history and adventure. We are a non-profit group led entirely by volunteers, and our goal is to support the discovery and understanding of the UAE's natural diversity and archaeological heritage. We act as a community resource that provides opportunities to learn and engage with nature, bringing like-minded people together. My name is Arabella Willing, and I'm the chair of the Abu Dhabi chapter. Together, we organise lectures, field trips, we publish a journal, and distribute grants and awards. In this episode, we will be hearing from Dr. Richard Perry, who is a zoologist and great expert on Abu Dhabi's environment, having worked here on and off since 1999. His current role is at the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi as an advisor to the Secretary General and Chairman of the Research and Technical Committee. In this talk, he tells us about an incredibly important document, the Abu Dhabi State of the Environment Report for 2017, which he project managed. The document can be downloaded from the Environment Agency's website, ead.ae. Um, so this is it. Okay, this is the book. And you're right, it took about 18 months to, to produce, which is actually typical. When we first start off on this exercise, we um, benchmark what everyone else does, and Australians actually do a very good job, so we sort of try to copy what they did. Um, and typically, you've got a team of about 20, 30 people working on these things for about 18 months or so, and you repeat them every five years. Um, so I'm not too disappointed with an 18-month turnaround. Okay, I'm, say, I'm not a master or an expert on anything, I was a jack of all trades, and I was project managing this project. So I can certainly explain to you what we did, but if you ask too many detailed technical questions, I may flounder a bit. But I'll take your questions, and I can certainly get back to you with a, you know, a reasonable response at some stage. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about the process we went through, why we did it, how we did it, and then we'll delve into some of the chapters themselves, and I'll show you some of the data that came out of it, and some of the sort of rationale and the reasoning that came through from the report itself. So, what is the SOER, okay, Abu Dhabi State of Environment Report? <clears throat> so, it's this thing, and there's an executive summary kicking around as well. 180-odd pages thick. There's an online version. You can go to this soe.ae site, download the full report or each chapter individually, and also you'll find there the link to the data sets behind it as well. Okay? So, if you want further information, please visit the site download the full report or the individual chapters, and you can certainly access the, the data sets as well. Okay. So why do we do it? What's the point of an SOE? Well, the idea is that the state of environment allows you to assess the state of the environment. That's it simply, you know, it says it on the can, that's what it says. We need to understand what is the state of our environment that we're living in, in order to make decisions about what we're gonna to do to that environment. Okay. It's typically a, a government policy tool and it's done every sort of five years or so. And really it's to support policymakers, decision makers, who aren't necessarily the experts about these things. Okay, so we gather all the data together, we try and analyze and make meaningful sense out of it, and push it out in something that actually looks reasonable, that's understandable, and points people in the right direction. Okay. And what I'd like from you is when you've downloaded the document, read it, give me some feedback, please. Is it comprehensible? Do you understand it? Can we improve it? because we've got another four years or so before we have to do the next one, so we've got a bit of time to improve. But please give us feedback. We've done a couple of these in the past. 
Um, but we outsourced it. We got consultants in to do the job for us and never really built the capacity internally within the agency. This time around, uh, the remit was build national capacity, build your national capacity. So for each chapter, we had a lead author who was an Emirati, and we had a team of four or five people typically, um, as many Emiratis and expat experts involved in that team to write the chapters. We also went out to the various other experts. We had a couple of workshops, one uh, actually the EAD headquarters and one at NYU, um, and a few members in the audience here attended those workshops. And we sent the document out for peer review. Now, I'm sure we could have gone out further and got more information, more expert opinion and, and input. Um, but it's not a bad document at the end of the day. Certainly could be better, um, but it's not bad. 18 months, it seemed like a lifetime, to be honest. I was project manager, and, and that was everything I thought <laughs> lived and breathed for 18 months. It wasn't easy, and there are a lot of lessons to be learned, certainly. I'll relay some of those lessons learned, actually. Data. Data is the big issue. It's a data-driven document. Getting hold of the data is a big issue for us. At the agency, we have certain data sets and quite comprehensive data sets. But we don't have all the data. And that's where we need to go to other people. We need to go to the citizens. We need to go to you. Send us your bird data, send us your fish data. You know, all that sort of data comes in. But there's other data about the relationships between those various bodies. So the impact of groundwater on habitats on salinity in soils, on habitats, on camel grazing, on vegetation. We don't have that information at all. Okay, So we've got some comprehensive data sets, but there are a lot of gaps there as well. And there are a lot of issues facing the Emirates as well. Groundwater's running out, the air's poor to breathe, vegetation's disappearing at a fast rate, certain species are, are threatened. We have a lot of issues facing us. Understanding what's driving those issues is what's important to make right informed decisions. So how do we do that then? Well, the overall framework of the SOE document, and we struggled with this one actually, and, and I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of listen to suggestions. We had environmental themes, and we basically went air, water, land, biodiversity. So air, soils, water, marine and water quality, and biodiversity. And we had issue chapters as well, climate change, waste, uh, forestry and fisheries. It's a fairly arbitrary split, and I'm open to hear other suggestions of how do you describe the environment in a sensible, meaningful manner. Um, but that's what we decided to do at the time. And those, those chapters are partly driven by the structure of the agency as well. We have divisions for each one of those thematic areas, really. We decided to use the DPSIR framework, the Driver Pressure State Impact Response Framework, it's a well-known framework promulgated mainly by the European Environment Agency and others, um, which looks at what's driving the pressures that cause the state have the impact and the response we have to those impacts. Okay, so what? So in terms of systems, is understand the system from start to finish, and that's where we found we had lots of gaps in our data and our knowledge and understanding. What is driving the whole thing? There's a chapter right at the start of the SOE where we had a lot of common drivers. Population increase, for instance, is one of them. But everyone says, oh, population increase is causing you know, more emissions, more waste, more water consumption. But we don't actually have the data and the evidence for that. And it's actually very difficult to, to get those uh, correlations. So this is the framework we used, but finding the evidence to enable us to do the analysis was really quite difficult. And that's an area we need to concentrate upon 
for the next time round. Right, you may not be able to read a lot of the information here, but that's okay. What I'm trying to get across here is that effectively we have an environmental area and we have us, people. Okay, and we have to live in the environment and the environment affects us and we affect the environment. You've got drivers, economic drivers, industrial drivers, policy drivers, you've got social drivers, you've got pressures, you've got state and impact, okay? And it's understanding the relationships between all of those, that's what we're trying to get at. What's causing us to create more pollution? The fact that we all like our big land cruisers, or the fact there's no public transport in place. You know, it's those sort of things we need to understand. And each of those has a response. And those responses come at any place in that whole framework. And we also need to understand the costs and benefits of those responses. Right? Sometimes it's all right to let a few things die off, or a little waste here, because to try and clean it up will cause more problems. Again, we don't have the information to be able to make those decisions half the time. So that framework is what we try to use for this 18-month exercise. And you can see it's quite a complex, involved process, for which you need a lot of data and a lot of analysis. You also need, if you think, remember those chapters, you need the chapter authors to talk to each other. So the groundwater chapter looks at groundwater. Do they think about the soil chapter and the biodiversity chapter? You know, it's, it's those links across as well. And that was quite a struggle. But broken down quite simply then, the State of Environment report is, what is happening in the environment of Abu Dhabi Emirate? What do we observe out there? Do we see dirty water, no water, clean air, dusty air? What do we actually see? What's the state? Why is it happening? Do we know why we have got dusty air, dirty water, no water, etc.? What are the consequences? If the groundwater drops, what's happening? Is the whole vegetation dying off? Is it okay? Does it matter if it drops or not? Okay. This analysis will help us understand those things, which will help us make policy decisions about do we want a food security policy? Do we want to grow wheat with lots of water? Those sort of issues. Okay, so the structure then, and we'll delve into detail in a minute. We start off with an introduction chapter, of course. Common drivers, typically population increase, um, but the links between population increase and the impacts it might have or the pressure it might exert, we're not always very clear on. We've got the environmental chapters, air, water, marine, soil, and biodiversity. And then we've got the issue chapters, climate change, fisheries, forestry, and waste. And again, forestry was a bit of a, we struggled. It was in at one point, then it was out at another point, then it was back in again. Primarily because EED at the time was in charge of forest in the Emirate. It's now with the municipality. But also because the forest actually used a lot of water. So we felt it actually was quite a big issue. And then each chapter itself has a common framework, the DPSIR framework. Okay, that's how it's structured. So common drivers then. Population. Population has increased and is still increasing, but at a slower rate, certainly. Population in Abu Dhabi is a mixture of people, a lot of expats, a lot of different backgrounds. But getting these numbers was a nightmare. <laughs> we, um, we struggled. I mean, we've got the statistics set to Abu Dhabi, who is the authority of all the numbers, the, the official number set. And we thought we had the right numbers from them. We went to publish. We sent it back to the review. Oh, that number's changed. And that happened about four or five times for us. And it, it was a nightmare getting the right number in here. And that, again, is part of the problem. If you can get the data, is it the right data? Has everyone agreed that it is the right data? And that was a struggle for us. And that's certainly a lesson learned for the next time around. We need to set up better structures and in place to get the agreed numbers earlier on. 
So I said, population has increased, is increasing, slightly slower now. Interestingly enough, um, the, earth, the, the rural areas are experiencing quite a growth in, in population as well. There's partly expansions, there's the Algarbia or the Western region development plans. There's a lot of building going on. But overall, UAE stroke Abu Dhabi as well, we have a very high ecological footprint per capita. We use a lot of water, a lot of energy, and we produce a lot of waste. And as I said to the previous Secretary-General many years ago, we live in a desert. We're never going to be sustainable here. Same as we live in Antarctica. It'd be very difficult to be sustainable in Antarctica. Well, I've measured temperatures out there at 63 degrees centigrade. It's, you, know, you need something to cool you down at that sort of temperature. Um, you need fresh water. So we live in a very hostile environment. And we either become, go back to being Bedou and living, you know, within the means of the land to support us, or we go to a super Mazdas type scenario. But in between, we're never going to be sustainable. And we will have a high footprint. Okay, we will have an impact. Now, we're fortunate that I think UAE government and Abu Dhabi government have really taken this on quite seriously now. Uh, for years, it was, oh, you've got a, a high footprint, but it doesn't really matter. Now I think things are changing. There's quite a lot of concerted efforts now to do something about that, to reduce the footprint, to become the most sustainable city in the world, to, you know, all these aspirations and visions are there. It's getting the infrastructure in place to do something about it. Right, so the first thematic chapter then, air quality. These are the parameters that we measure in particular. And you see that SO2 is up, but it's within the limits. It's increasing. Carbon monoxide is decreasing. It's okay. Nitrogen dioxide, okay. Ozone is a problem for us. Okay. It exceeds the limits and it is increasing. So understanding why that's the case is something we need to focus upon. Okay. Is it transportation? What is it? Particular matter, dust, is bad. Very high levels. We live in a desert. But it's not all natural dust. There is an element of, of anthropogenic dust there as well. So we need to accept that we live in a very dusty environment. Last year, I spent a couple of weeks in intensive care with pneumonia. Um, I got a load of dust in my lungs and it you know, knocked me out a bit. We need to take it seriously. We live in a very dirty atmosphere. And we need to be quite sensible about that. So what can we do is the question. What's causing that? Is it overgrazing, releasing soil particles? Is it construction sites? Is it... You know, industry, what is it? What's causing this dust? And the team at EAD are certainly doing a lot of work on that front at the moment. They're doing some speciation studies and trying to find out where this dust is coming from. And hydrogen sulfide, there's no current standard limit, um, but it is increasing. So the two main ones, dust and ozone, those are two parameters that we're particularly concerned about at the moment. We've got a, a fairly extensive monitoring network across the Emirate. Many of the stations are within sort of a fenced compounds and schools and things. So to be able to they looked after. We also linked into various other networks, the uh, oil sector, aviation, um, other Northern Emirates. Uh, don't you know how many stations altogether are? There's, we've got 20, there are about 80 altogether, I think. So it's quite, quite a comprehensive network of air quality monitoring stations around the UAE that are providing data. Um, now, this is a, a snapshot from our quarterly report. We produce reports every quarter. This is a snapshot from our website, a portal, and um, the address is there, and that gives real-time daily data. It's not verified data at this stage. I mean, it's quite a task just to verify it and tidy it up. But you can log on any time and get, you know, basically real-time data. And there's an app as well, the Plume app, which you can download on your phone. And at an instance, you can see what the quality of the air is like. 
Again, not verified data, but we're actually working on, on improving that as well. So in terms of air quality, we actually do have quite a lot of data. It's understanding what the impacts are and what we can do about them is, is where we need to focus. And again, that data is available. Uh, and we've been talking to Cliff University recently about supplying data sets to them for analysis. And, and samples as well. We've got a load of filter papers as well we, we don't use. Might as well give them someone else to use. So there's a lot of data there. And if you're interested, we're also working with um, NYU on the health impacts of air quality as well. Soil data. EAD, several years ago now, uh, 2009 I think it was, did a quite a comprehensive soil survey of the whole of the Emirate. It's actually a, a very good study. There's a lot of very good data there. And we're working with the police as well, so forensic labs for soil and all sorts of things. So it's a very comprehensive soil atlas that we have. It's the sort of thing you repeat every 20, 30 years or so. I've had requests quite often from GSET to do it every week. And I've had to explain to them it's not really something that you can repeat on a weekly basis. But we have a fairly good atlas of soil. We don't have much in the way of other data on soils at the moment. And we are building capacity. We've recruited a few more people into, into the agency. And they are doing some particularly focused on contaminated land at the moment. So our capability is improving. But we still lack an awful lot of information on soils on that front. We know where the soil is generally degraded. And you can obviously see the sabkas, okay, very saline. The atlas itself looked at land suitability for, for agriculture. This information is useful for us. Again, really for a policy-making um, process. This data was shared with the Urban Planning Council when they're doing this plan maritime and other plans. So you can see what, you know, we don't want to build an airport on really good agricultural land. We don't want, you know, we want to use the appropriate land for, or soil type for the appropriate construction or, or land use. So having this data is useful for planning purposes. But it is labor intensive to collect that information. I don't, I've forgotten how many pits they dug over the whole, I mean, Mark, do you? There was thousands of it. <laughs> it was hard work, a lot of hard work. Okay, water resources then. Again, we've got a quite extensive network of uh, wells around the Emirate. We know that groundwater is decreasing. We know it's getting more saline. Uh, we know there's not much recharge. So we know a fair bit about the water. We could do with more monitoring on abstraction wells on the farms, for instance. We don't know how much water people are actually taking out at the moment. It's all guesstimate. You know, a couple of years ago, one of my colleagues went to the farm and did a bucket test and saw the rate of water. And that's almost what we use now to estimate how much water has been taken out. So that is an area that needs to be improved. And with the new water law last year, um, the intention is that you know, wells will be monitored. They'll have to install meters. Lots of difficulties. I mean, it's a very hot, salty, inhospitable climate out there for sensitive equipment. And also people tend to you know, not use it correctly either. So getting that data is difficult. Estimates when we were doing the 2030 exercise a couple of years ago in 2010 was that we had about 50 years left of groundwater at, at the current rate of abstraction. And when you consider this very little recharge, 85 mils a year or so, that's you know, going to cause problems in the future, particularly if you use it for lots of irrigation or farming. So again, policy decisions have to be made. What do we want? How best to do it? What is our response going to be to that information? Do we use desal? Do we use TSE due to sewage effluent? Do we try and improve our efficiency of crops? Okay, what are we going to do in the knowledge that water is running out? What's our response going to be? And again, the water data is available from EAD. You can you know, make an application for the data. If you go to the, the GeoPortal site, you can download uh, subsets of that data. If you want more of it, you can make a formal application for an email, and, and we can sort that out for you as well. I mentioned before that the reason forestry was retained in the SOE was because 
it uses a lot of water, and so does agriculture. And you can see here, agricultural forestry by far use the most amount of water that we have, mainly groundwater, a little bit of recycled, but that's increasing, and a little bit of desalinated water for forest and agriculture as well, which again, the rest of it is, is really desalinated water. And that's an issue for us as well, because where does that water come from? Primarily the sea. How do we get it? By burning gas. What happens there? We put up GHG emissions. We then discharge for every one cubic meter of water we desalinate, we put out nine cubic meters of hot, salty water and kill off you know, seagrass and corals in the immediate vicinity. So there are, there are impacts associated with that desalinated water. I've, in fact, I need to talk to some of the university professors. If we can find a use for that brine, a commercial you know, use for that brine, problem solved, hopefully, rather than dumping it in the sea. How we do that, I don't know. But that is our biggest problem. That's one of the biggest problems facing the Emirates at the moment, is the brine entering into the sea, getting more and more salty all the time, and you've got is it a thousand desal plants around the Gulf? Do you know? Well, something like that, isn't it? It's something about a thousand desal plants around the whole of the Gulf, all pumping hot, salty water back into the Gulf. Fairly enclosed basin. It's only going to get worse over time. Okay. So again, our water usage we need to look at. So I didn't say but with, the, with the groundwater, we've got um, several thousand monitoring wells across the whole of the Emirate. So there's quite a lot of data on groundwater we have. There are still gaps in our knowledge. And abstraction is, is, is really the main one. Marine water quality, we've got a fairly limited monitoring network. We've only got about 20 monitoring stations, I think, overall. They were set up a while ago, and primarily around the actual island itself, and really for looking at discharge um, and problems we had with sort of uh, pollution events. They're looking at the monitoring network, and they're looking to improve it and get a better, more comprehensive view of what's going on out there. But it's not a bad data set. And they've been doing it now for several years as well. Not sure if you can see this, but effectively we've got three indicators. We've got microbial index, heavy metal index, and eutrophication index. Okay, and what you'll find is that in the and you probably can't read that there, but we've got confined areas, closed water, marine protected areas, public beaches. Okay, so these two here are really sort of the, the cleaner, more sort of a natural environments, closed, confined, and port areas here. And you can see generally that the closed, confined areas have worse water quality, which is you know, to be expected. One of the impacts of that poor water quality, a couple of the impacts, are fish kills and harmful algal blooms. Now, we've had fish kill events in the past. Fortunately, the last couple of years, there hasn't really been a major instance, which, which is good news. The bad news is that harmful algal blooms are on the increase. But quite why and quite what we can do about it, that's a question. And you know, some of my colleagues, and I know Master University are also looking at this, is looking at dust storm events as a precursor for alpha-lagal bloom as a potential way of predicting where they might come. Biodiversity. I don't know how many of you have seen this map before. Um, this is a, almost a culmination of a lot of EAD's efforts over the years. This is the result of the habitat survey we did a couple of years ago. Um, and I believe at the time we actually asked the natural history groups to get involved and help do some of the baseline survey for us. Natural vegetation, habitat types, land use types were mapped across the whole of the Emirate and subsequently to that were now helped the Northern Emirates as well. First time in the world it's been done at this resolution to this scale and it was really quite a remarkable piece of work. It's actually a pretty good data set. Yes, there are always going to be mistakes. It's, you know, there are always going to be errors. There are always going to be improvement. But as a data set, it's pretty good and certainly better than anything we had before. 
it was a snapshot in time. I think the satellite image that was used was 2013, 2014. And the remote sensed with field work and, and, and ground truthing, really quite a good data set. And what we've, and now forming the basis of everything we do in terms of our planning for protected areas is what the Urban Planning Council are using for their, uh, what they call now Department of Municipal Urban Planning, or what they call the change acronym now, are using for their plans and policies. We have certain KPIs and targets um, in terms of protection of those habitats. We've identified where we think most of them are, which ones are at risk now. And if we overlay the 2030 plans, which ones are going to be built upon? Which ones are going to be lost in the next 5, 10, 15 years? And we just actually recently finished a, a study. A colleague of mine was unfortunately manually digitized, re-digitizing it again, the latest versions. And it was something like 0.6% decrease in habitats in the last three years. Which is actually not bad news, really. It's, it's actually pretty good. We have a target of no more than 20% loss by 2030. Okay, that's a, uh, an international target, a CBD uh, convention target um, that UAE has signed up to. So that's our target, no more than 20% loss to retain 80% of the habitats. And from our calculations, we've lost 0.6% over the last three years. But you see the rate of development that's going on at the moment. The problem is, where is it happening along the coastline? Salt marshes, sabka, mangroves, are habitats are particularly at risk. So each habitat type has a target as well of 16% under formal protection. And that's where these protected areas come in handy. So these red lines are all the protected areas. And um, a month or so ago, a couple of months ago, they were formally gazetted. So they're now formally protected, which is good news. I mean, they've always been sort of on the map informally. Could be bulldozed any time. Now they're formally gazetted. What we now need to do is work on the protected area management plans. Let's manage them properly. Let's use them. Let's you know, actually be creative with them. What we also need to do is look at the data we've, we've collected in terms of the habitats. Which ones aren't protected? What's missing? And sand sheets with trees, I think, is one particular habitat that's not represented at all, or very little. So somewhere we need to find a patch and put a fence around it, protect it. Okay? So that analysis of what's protected, what's not protected, what's out there, comes out of something like the SOE, the State Environment Report, and helps inform future plans. Okay. And northern alluvial inter intergenual plains, not well protected at all either. Okay, so those two in particular, we need to do something about. So Dick, if you know where they are, let's find them, let's protect them. Okay. And ideally, let's try and get a protected network that links up together as well. That makes sense. So this information is in the State of Environment Report. The, the baseline maps uh, and the polygons, the GIS layers, can be downloaded from the GeoPortal as well. All that data is accessible and usable for you. In terms of species, we're not so well off in terms of our information and knowledge. There have been many surveys over the years in certain locations. And the Natural History Group themselves and members of the groups are very good at you know, monitoring the birds and sending data in and sending observations in. And Tribulus has lots of good information. And EAD goes out and does surveys there and there and there. But we really don't have a very comprehensive knowledge across the whole of the emirate. No systematic survey or grid of species distribution or abundance. And that's something I've been pressing for the last 15 years <laughs> without much success, unfortunately. It's something we still need to do to really understand the threat status of the species, where they are, how they're using the habitats, which habitats are at risk, therefore what species are at risk. And further than that, and in the climate change chapter they looked at a little bit as well, with the changing climate, which species may be at risk in the future? 
And again, even these numbers <laughs> we had difficulty with. Um, I think we had about three versions of these numbers at one stage. And it took quite a lot of going around the doors and asking people and trying to settle on what are the actual numbers, what are the official numbers. So even those numbers were, were debatable. So that's the environment. We describe the environment as such. And we know a fair, fair bit about air, water, soils, habitats, less so on biodiversity and the species and, and, and where they're all at. Um, and that's something we can talk about at the end, about how, how you can become involved and give us information. Now we'll move on to the issue chapters. These are sort of less easy to define, less easy to analyze, and climate change in particular is very difficult for us, partly because there's no one really in the agency who's responsible for climate change. Yes, we have a department that does air quality and climate change. Does the ministry do it at the federal level? Does EAD do it? You know, who's responsible for climate change and all its nuances? Who looks at energy, for instance? Is it the Environment Agency? Is it the Ministry of Energy? You know, who's, who's responsible? That's been a very difficult problem for us for a long time. We are building up capability, and we've recently produced what's a third, a second GHG inventory now. So we know which uh, greenhouse gases are being emitted and by whom. And you can see here that energy, and we talked a little bit before about desal water, energy requirements, air conditioning, is the biggest draw on emissions. This information, again, is available. So we understand what's causing the pressure. We understand a little bit about what the state is in terms of temperature trends. The impacts we've done a little bit of modeling on, and, and my colleagues Najid and Derek here can tell us more about that, and Jane, his colleague as well, have done a fair bit of work on modeling the impacts of climate change. And there's an article in the National just the other day about a potential uh, retreat to the coastline about three kilometers, I reckon, from petroleum industry. They came up with a figure like that by 2100, I think it was. So there are potential impacts of climate change on us that we need to be mindful of. And how do we mitigate those or adapt to them? We've done some work on coral bleaching. We're working with um, Zayed University and NYU, certainly, on um, thermal resilience of corals. And the good news is that the corals here are actually quite resilient to, to thermal increases. But our understanding is still fairly limited on climate change. It's really quite poor. And we just need to be mindful that the potential impacts of it might be quite severe. We need to be ready for that. And fisheries. Mark or Peter can correct me here. Ikifegi, yes, the fish eaters. It's how this part of the world was known by the ancient Greeks, I believe. Apparently, we have one of the highest fish-eating uh, consumption per capita in the world, which I find hard to believe myself, because I don't actually see fish on the menu that often. But anyway, fisheries here um, have been overfished, as they have been across the world. The Environment Agency has done several fish stock assessments over the years, and really it's looked like fairly you know, depressing news, to be honest. 80 to 90% decrease in fish. It's not looking good for those fish stocks out there. They are being overfished. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? And that's where the, you know, we know what the state is, so what's our response going to be? And quite a lot of effort has gone into that recently. And you know, they're talking about you know, uh, restrictions on fishing gear, ban on fishing, but there are social implications. And we talked about, when I mentioned at the start, the cost benefits, the trade-offs to be had. Um, you've got to think about your response, what might the impact be? from that response. Who are you upsetting? What cultural values are you upsetting? What economic values are upsetting? In the long term, though, the fish will disappear. So if you don't do anything, the problem solves itself in, in, a, in a way. So fish stock is a problem for us. We've got quite a lot of good information now on fish stock. Um, unfortunately, it's not good news. Very few of the fish species caught are fished sustainably. 
And that's something we really do need to address, either through fish farming and aquaculture, and again, there's recent work on, on and promoting aquaculture in the region, changing the habits of fishermen, changing our eating habits. We can all eat insect protein or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you know, we, we need to think about these things really quite seriously. The problem we've got, I say problem, the difficulty we have is that there are a lot of cultural issues to be had as well. You know, there's a rich heritage of fishing in this area. You can't just say, right, you can't fish now. And it's very difficult to do that. So you do have to be very sensitive. Right, um, forestry, there's a surprising amount of forests across the Emirate. Some seem rather sort of, what on earth is that doing here in the middle of the desert? You know, what, what, you know, why do you see these trees here? Some is planted along the roadside to stop the dust. Some is planted there for animals and, and uh, um, biodiversity. Um, so there's a mixture of reasons why forests have been planted over the years. The problem, of course, is we live in a desert and trees need water. And we tend to overwater them. We tend to think, oh, it's the middle of the summer, let's turn the tap on and flood them. Actually, recent studies have shown that in the summer, trees have adapted quite happily. They estivate effectively and they actually use less water. So why are we flooding them? You know, so understanding these systems helps us manage the systems better. So forestry, ED was in charge of the management of all these forests across the Emirate um, until last year, and um, it was handed back to the municipality. So we're no, we're no longer in charge of the operations, but we're still involved in the, the regulations of uh, uh, what's going to happen in those forests. So we need to understand where they are, what's happening there, why are they there, how best use, what best use can we make of them. You see there, the red ones, and there are quite a few of them, have wildlife value. Typically, herds of gazelle in a fenced area with a few trees. Uh, Dick, yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> bear witness to that. But potentially, it has ecotourism value, and that's something the agency is looking to at the moment. There's a big demand to diversify the economy, to promote ecotourism. Potentially, that's early days, days yet, these areas could be used for ecotourism. Potentially. Waste. As I said right at the start, we have one of the highest waste per capita in the world. Well, we used to. It's no longer the case, actually. We're actually improving. But we do produce a lot of waste. And uh, this picture here, um, when I was at Mazda City, as a sustainability manager at Mazda City, we had a, a zero waste policy, effectively, or goal. And during construction, we managed 96.8% diversion from landfill, um, which is not bad, to be honest. But that's not the norm, certainly. And it took quite a lot of effort. Part of the reason is there's very little infrastructure here in, in the Emirate. That's improving, though. And a colleague of mine just literally just last week told me of four new waste infrastructure projects that are on the, you know, on the horizon. So we are starting to recycle, reuse our waste, manage our waste better. And there'll probably be a, a tax on it fairly soon or something as well, no doubt. <laughs> but that's something we're doing to take seriously. There's this map here. You see all these yellow dots if I'm right. Or is it the way around? No, it's just the yellow dots. It could be all the brown dots. It's where the waste is, or the illegal waste dumps. We did an aerial survey many years ago. Six years ago, I think it was. 2015, three years ago. Aerial survey, really for um, waste and gazelle and camels. It was more of a general survey. And these are all the illegal waste dumps they, they observed. Now, they range from a tin can here, a pile of tires there, to a massive big site. Okay, so there's quite a lot of noise in that data. But you can see that most areas across the Emirates have been trashed at some point, which will provide rich pickings for the archaeologists of the future, no doubt, <laughs> as Mark will no doubt justify. 
But, I mean, I know whenever I go camping out in the desert, there's always going to be a tin can over here or something over there. It's, these days, you can hardly go anywhere without seeing some rubbish. And in Northern Ireland, it's even worse, I'm afraid. So illegal waste dumping is a problem for us. But even managed waste dumping is a problem for us. Because we don't actually have properly constructed waste sites either. Um, and again, that's something the Emirates working on to be able to manage its waste better. We're also looking in terms of impacts of that waste, um, potential of leachate and contamination of the groundwater. So facilities, there are some facilities, not many, but it's improving. Okay, so the, new, the good news is it's improving. The response is we're building infrastructure, we're trying to manage the problem. The data we got, and this is a sewage wastewater and stuff, but typically the waste data we, we've had over the years has always been very... Um, I wouldn't say suspect, but it's always been changing every time you ask the question. You always get a different number. Um, again, they're getting better at the data on waste. Our understanding of what's out there is getting better, but it's not perfect by a long shot. So if you're working with sort of um, uncertain data, it's very difficult to make decisions and policies as well. In summary then, and I said I'd be fairly short and sweet and we'll open up to questions in a minute. Um, we, have, we have a dashboard of indicators whether they're the right indicators is a question, and you know, I'm open to suggestions as well. They're indicators of data that we know about at the moment. You know, we're sort of limited by what we know. Soil, we don't actually have an indicator at the moment. There's been some debate about what is a suitable indicator for soils. But I've deliberately not put red, green, amber against these indicators. Um, that was a decision right at the start of the SOE process that we just wanted to talk about the state of environment and not where we're benchmarked internationally or wherever it might be, because there seems to be a, a deep fixation on how do we rank globally on these issues. And really, we're, we're, we're in a unique environment here. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Richard, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating and lots of food for thought there. A great big thank you as well to all of you for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about our organization, including how to become a member, please check out our website, enhg.org forward slash Abu Dhabi. If you'd like to send us an email, we would love that. Our address is Abu Dhabi at enhg.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at enhgad or on Instagram at enhg underscore Abu Dhabi. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our wonderful patron, His Excellency Sheikh Nahyan bin Mubarak Al Nahyan, and for the generous support of our volunteer committee members. A special mention to Mona for her help with editing these podcasts. Thanks as well to our individual, family, and corporate ENHG members for their support. And a special mention again to Park Hyatt Abu Dhabi, who generously hosted us for this event. That's it for now. Goodbye. Thank you.